Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast. This is a bonus episode of the Electric Shadows podcast, looking at William Friedkin's 1977 masterpiece, in my humble opinion, Sorcerer. This was originally going to be the beginning of the Justice League episode that we did last year, but when listening back to it, we decided that we would just jump into our discussion of Justice League at that point. So this has been sitting fallow ever since. But, as there hasn't been a podcast for about a month or so now, we thought you would like to listen to this one as a bonus episode until the next one comes along. The next one looking to be Infinity Wars. So, hope you enjoy the ride as we take a journey with William Friedkin's explosive 1977 movie, Sorcerer. Four men, condemned by their past, robbed of their future, trapped in a life that was also a death. Four men take an incredible chance, face an impossible challenge, and risk the only thing they have left to lose. No, I've got some... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Will you get the name right? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it's rough, hewn from the streets. I think this is one thing you can say about this podcast. It's, it's from the streets, I've heard of. It's from, it's from Sesame Streets. Hello, and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel. And as always, I am very happy to say that I am joined by my learned, my resplendent, my wonderful colleague, Mr. Rob Wallace. Kind words, very much appreciated as always. Um, shall we get the plugs out of the way? Plug away. Um, you can read my work at ofallthefilmsites.com. There's a uh, Facebook group by the same name. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. Beautifully done. You can read my stuff at electric-shadows.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. The smoothest of all the Twitter handles. Um, you can subscribe to this on iTunes and the Android one, which we still haven't found out what what that oh one is, God. but that's fine. There's an Android one as well, um, and SoundCloud. And I think they're all the plugs, aren't they? they all the, I think I think we've yeah, the plugs we're, that are fit to print. I think I think that was done it. So you know, you no longer have to worry about us going on about the places that you can find other stuff about film. We're just going to go on about film. So that's... Yes, indeed. So without further ado, let's move on to Sorcerer. So Sorcerer is a film that was made in 1970. Well, actually, it was made I think in 75 and shot through 76. It was released in 77. It is a remake of The Wages of Fear, which is the 1953 film directed by Henri Georges Clouseau. Not that Clouseau. Not that Clouseau. <laughs> and it is about four. Ne'er do wells who are trapped in a shanty town in South America. They desperately want to get out, but they're stuck in awful jobs and they can't earn enough money for the airfare to get out of these of this horrible town. And then an oil well a couple of hundred miles away blows and the company who owns the oil well says if you can drive a couple of trucks of highly unstable nitroglycerin through the jungle and make it there then you get $10,000 each, and that's your ticket out of here. If you don't get there, that's because... You've been blown to smithereens. You've been blown to smithereens. Yeah, the nitroglycerin has grumbled, 
So they do it and they embark on quite quite a perilous journey. This was a film that for years was really, really difficult to see. And we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast. So we'll just go over a brief bit of the history. It was really, really difficult to see because it came out and was a huge, huge disaster commercially. It was on such a big budget. It had to be funded by a couple of studios, so Universal and Paramount. William Friedkin, who was at the height of his power as a director, um, he'd come off of The French Connection and off of The Exorcist, and was also at the height of his hubris, and they went down to South America to the Dominican Republic, so down to Latin America, and... He cobbled it. And he, yeah, he did. He cobbled it together. He cobbled it, it together. That's <laughs> um, a very good way of putting it. It was all done for real. He was really driving these trucks through the rainforest, through the jungle. Got some absolutely amazing footage. It's one of those films where I'd say the money is up there on screen. Uh, got amazing performances by Roy Scheider, as, uh, who was in, in the lead. Because the original lead, who was Steve McQueen wanted to take his then newlywed wife, Annie McGraw, down there as well. There was no role for her. And William Friedkin said, I'm not going to give her some yeah, nonsense. Tokers, yeah. credit. That's right. It's, uh, so therefore, Steve McQueen said, well, then I'm not going to be in your film. Which, of course, was a massive miscalculation on Friedkin's part because he lost his movie star. And it would be interesting to see what this film would have done if Steve McQueen had been in it. I think it would have made a bit more money than it did because it was a real flop because it came out about a week after Star Wars, and Star Wars kind of did all right at that point, I think. Um, so basically, this played in cinemas to pretty much empty houses, and all the cinema owners said, we're going to put Star Wars back on, because everyone is asking for Star Wars, and they're lining up around the block to see it more than once. So Sorcerer lay fallow for years and years and years, until 2014 or something like that, when Warner Brothers in the States put out a Blu-ray, and... That, I'd say, is when it's modern... Um, Rediscovery. Yeah, the rehabilitation of its reputation has started. Um, and it's now been released in this country on Blu-ray by those wonderful folk at E1. So, Sorcerer. I think it's very good. But, Rob, what do you think? Well, you know, it's just wages of fear adjusted for inflation, isn't it? Okay, that's... Wait to say that, could you? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> He's very proud of that line. It's, it's, it's a good line. It's a film... I very much enjoyed, but I do. Th- I personally, having seen Wages of Fear earlier in the year, I prefer Clouseau's original because I think it's better as a sort of pure vehicle for suspense. Mm. I think Freakins is arguably more ambitious filmmaking, but that's not necessarily a good thing, as he clearly learned going slightly mad in the jungles of South America. I mean, I know, I know that you feel differently. I know... Or... Because that's the thing, is that you're on the right side of history with this. This was a oh. film that everyone thought was like a huge folly because The Wages of Fear was regarded as such a... And it, it is a very, very good thriller. It's one of the really great thrillers. It's based on a um, novel on by... a book by... Is it Henri Arnaud? I think so, yes. Um, and the premise is just so irresistible for a thriller. Like, you know, you're driving highly unstable explosives through the jungle, uh, you're going over rough terrain and it could blow at any moment. That's a really good premise. And Wages of Fear, I think, is a is a good film. I have to admit, I always thought that the Wages of Fear didn't, at the time, they couldn't quite achieve with the trucks what William Friedkin could in this film. I thought that the special effects, if you like, 
in the wages of fear weren't quite there to get the suspense across. Oh, I, 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 I totally disagree on that one. I think there are sequences in Wages of Fear that are among some of the most suspenseful in cinema in a way that I didn't necessarily get with Sorcerer. And there, there are a couple of, there are several sequences in Sorcerer that obviously being based on the same source material very strongly recall Wages of Fear, as well as you know one entirely new edition that is probably the highlight of the film. But for me, Wages of Fear has a sequence where two trucks are going along a road to get a bumpy road and uh the one and they have to go above or below a certain space essentially if they're in the middle bracket for speed their thing will just blow up because it will get too bumpy yeah uh, you either have to be going so slow that the bumps don't really register or so quick that, that they don't really register and somehow the faster the faster truck has ended up behind the slower truck which based yeah. on because they don't have walkie talkies do they so they don't and they're not actually and there's no way to, to communicate. That they can communicate with each other. So the one in front has said, well, let's just take it really, really slowly. And the one behind is like, we just have to hit this at full speed and fly across it. And it, that, that's a really, really great idea. And yeah, and the, 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 just the simple, inescapable logic of that is so is so pure to me. And I, I, again, I like the freaking film, but it does rather overcomplicate itself. There's the opening sequence that feels very topical, especially for the 70s, dealing, and sort of deals with lots of themes... Like you know, like to do it like terrorism. There's scenes set in Jerusalem that, for me, recalls very strongly uh, Battle of Algiers. It's definitely shot in that same way. That scenes involving sort of a banker in France that, for me, was slightly redolent of uh, Day of the Jackal. And for me, Wages of Fear, the entire first act is just set in that one little town. And you know, it's not a short sequence, but it felt like a much simpler encapsulation of character. Just watching these people interact, and you got a sense of the where this place was. I thought. Much more clearly. I mean, the freaking immediately really? sets up no. why. Freaking immediately sets up what type of place it is, but it's very and it's and it's and it's done fairly economically. You know, it's very shorthand. It's very this place is grotty. It's full of gorillas. Gorillas, gu not gorillas. There might be gorillas. I don't yeah. know. Um, uh, but no, wages of fear. I think it starts much more theatrically in how it plays out, and I think it benefits from that. I don't. I, I find I found it less choppy. See, that's the thing is, I didn't find the film choppy. And it's, it's a film that is really, really bold in its structure because the opening 24 minutes is all prologue. You basically get four endings to different movies because the four characters, so you've got Roy Scheider, he's a wheelman for like an Irish mob, and they stick up a church that's a front for the local mob. And you have Bruno Kremer, who is a corrupt banker in Paris. And... Francisco or Francisco Rabal is um, he's a hitman, isn't he? Um, and Amadou is uh, Arab terrorist, and they're all at moments of crisis that are the ends to different films, and they just and it just launches you in with these, and you get forged one after another to set them all up. And I mean, my issues, I, I liked all of them individually, but I felt like they all came from different films. And on one hand, that works quite well in terms of how different these characters are. Uh, in terms of putting them in the same space but they all felt like they came from different films I'd seen before so I found it all a little bit derivative in a way that and and when they get into the jungle you've still got that backstory and you understand where they're coming from but the jungle is so detached from all that that they feel like you kind of lose the connection to who they were in their past lives as as they have done and since and since the character, I don't think the film is so heavily character focused later on in, in, in a way that Wages of Fear was. I feel there's, I, I find it difficult to invest as much in them emotionally because there wasn't the yeah. continuity. See, I, yeah, I thought there was, and I thought it was one of those that when you get into the jungle, it's like this is an existential journey. I think that it's, it's yeah, the same for the original as well. 
it's almost irrelevant that they have explosives in there. They just need to get out of this horrible terrain that they've found themselves in because of the bad things they've done. This is all like an existential penance that they're doing. But there's some really, really nice linking in the um, in those different scenes that kind of very, very subtly link them. So the Francisco Rabal character, Nilo, is in Vera Cruz when he assassinates someone and then has to flee. And in the Paris sequence, Kremer's wife makes reference to lobsters from Vera Cruz being really, like, yeah, the best lobsters. And the water's cooler. Or something like that, yeah. Um, and Roy Scheider is... Um, when he's about to do the bank job, he sees a Mack truck pull up and lots of money's being put into it. And so well, that's like a nice bit of foreshadowing of the truck that's going to give him lots of money later. I just thought this was filmmaker, who is a madman, but he's a he's not like a Michael Bay madman where it's all just like... Frenetic. Yeah, and that horrible thing that Michael Bay said is like, yeah, that his style is fucking the frame. I think the freaking is a is a guy who knows exactly what he's doing and is, is actually making a really intelligent film. And I really like the way that when they get to the town, to this awful shanty town, that the local bar is run by a Nazi war criminal. He's you know, just fled and... He's a boy from, set boy, up he's a, one of the boys from Brazil, basically. He's one of the boys, yeah, that's right. It's, and he just set up this bar and is living in exile there as well. It's, it seems to be this place, you are in purgatory, basically, and you're just going to be here forever. And there's a really good sense of all the local cops being completely corrupt and everything just being set on like your corruption and that's why it's so good that the or that's why it's so ripe for all the corporations to come down there and just rape the land basically because no one's looking out for little people which you get in that amazing scene on the sport the whole thing there's there's an amazing scene with the accident when the oil well blows and uh yeah and it's just like a really ambitious film i thought and i think it's also like a film that's very much of today in the terrorism in the corrupt bankers in there just being no institution that you can trust because there's that wedding going on when they're sticking up the bank, um, up the church, sorry, and the bride has got a massive black eye. There's no institution here that actually looks out or cares for anyone, and everything's corrupt and you can't trust anything, and I think, well, that's you know, where we are today. So I thought there was a lot going on in there, and I think it also has one of the great set pieces when they're having to drive across that rickety bridge and it's in a rainstorm and and the bridge looks like it's going to collapse at any moment and the trucks are just... Are just Tilting. It, yeah, yeah, because it tilts so... So severely that you think, how is that not just falling off? Such an amazing sequence. And I, Sorry, and I love the fairy tale element of that when they're suddenly out of nowhere ambushed by a tree that's clearly just been swept downstream. That's a really, really nice moment, that. And again, like a bit of foreshadowing, because William Friedkin would later direct The Guardian. It's a killer tree film. And it's shit. <laughs> After this, he did Cruising, which was the Pacino mm. film, which I think is really good. It's just, it's so camp and so totally, utterly dated, yeah. and yeah, it's a, it's I mean, it's, there's a serial killer who is targeting members of the gay leather underworld, sort of the S and M community. That's right. And Pacino is an, is is a cop who goes undercover to try and find the serial killer, but is he going to be corrupted by their S and Mness? It's, it's a film that just fundamentally does not understand how being gay works. No, it really doesn't. It's kind of one of those where... But it's great because Al Pacino won't talk about that film. Even to this day, he won't talk about that film. And he did fucking Jack and Jill. so And completely shat over his career at the end of it. And I think The Cruising was the one film that wasn't referenced at the end of Jack and Jill when he's doing that horrible Dunkin' Donuts rap that is awful. 
they think, well, actually, it would have been really it, easy to reference. That it would have been really easy because he was basically sodomizing his career at that point. <laughs> it's like so. Therefore, it's in all fairness, he got he got that done in basically one scene. Robert De Niro has been doing it over the course of yeah. So Dirty Grandpa is again. It's uh, anyway. But Pacino's way of acting gay in cruising is to smile a lot and let his arms go floppy when he runs around, when he runs down the street with his so arms. Back, basically turns into one of those wacky, inflatable, arm-waving men, probably just driving down the, driving down the strip in LA, and he's like, I'm tr- really struggling to get into this character. And he saw one of them outside a car dealership, and he's like, boom, got it. That's it. Nothing says gay more than wacky, inflatable, <laughs> arm-waving man. With a big smile on their face. But anyway, yeah, so... It's about to sorcerer after that little detour. Sorry, go on. There are a couple of you know astonishing moments. The uh, the the part where they uh, they fix they fix up the lights and the lights come on, mm. and it's just an old truck is just suddenly you know lit in silhouette, and it reminded me that reminded me particularly of um, Christine. Yep. Um, I also was I also saw it I saw it at the Prince Charles Cinema off to, off Leicester Square, and it's a real flea pit, and I mean that in the best possible way. And we saw it in the downstairs screen, and the downstairs screen has this weird sort of overhang it's like you know the 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 ceiling's quite low until you reach a certain point and then it rises dramatically and there's a bit of a bow to that ceiling and so you kind of want to be sitting in front of that yeah and we were about four rows in the back dead center we had it was a good audience it was a really respectful audience which can occasionally be an issue at the pcc yeah and it was just like the perfect environment to sit in a big thick velvet curtains they part and you know it's just yeah yeah well it's great that it's getting a big screen release i think it's pretty much played out now, but I think we'll still be on in places like the Prince Charles for a while yet. And it's worth seeing on a big screen, I think. It is amazingly well shot. And it's shot by a couple of different cinematographers. Uh, the original cinematographer, Dick Bush, was great at shooting things in like a traditional way, but just couldn't shoot the jungle stuff and kind of said, look, this, this has to be shot on a stage. You can't shoot this for real. And he said, all right then. And then he got in another guy whose name I can't, I can't quite remember right now. Um, but I'll look it up. And Are you saying the other guy's name is not as memorable as Dick Bush? Yes, I am saying that it's not memorable as Dick Bush. It is one of those things where it's like, come on, you're over 40. Stop giggling. John M. Stevens, which I think we could every all... Bit, every bit as memorable as Dick Bush. Every bit as memorable as Dick Bush. He was a documentary filmmaker. Um, I think he was a documentary cameraman and he knew... How, how to, to light things yeah. and how to be in on a location and shoot things. Um, but also, Friedkin was a documentary filmmaker to begin with. And I think that's what comes across in his best films, like you know, The French Connection and The Exorcist. And this one is that you get the sense that a really well-paid documentary film crew are just making a movie about this. I mean, that whole scene when the oil well blows and what happens afterwards, which won't, you know, I want to spoil here just plays like a documentary I now want to see a version of Sorcerer where they do talking heads where they occasionally just take the test it's like so how are you feeling you know not great it's it's day three on the road (laughs) it's not going well it turns into eggs on the beach or something like that like you know Actually, we're not going to spoil it. We're going to hold off on... Yeah, I'm not going to say anything too spoilery. But, you know, after the thing happened, it really put a damper on everyone's mood. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm shattered, basically. Because <laughs> they are all northern in this film. Um, <laughs> no, they're from all over. Also, another really good thing about this film, which, again, seems much... You know, now you just wouldn't really think about it, but at the time it had people really worried, is that a lot of the opening of this film plays out with subtitles because they're all speaking original language. The whole, you know, I think that one of the points of this film is globalisation... And about how the tendrils of that will just affect everyone, no matter where you come from. A lot of the audience thought they'd been duped into watching a foreign film, to the point where cinemas were having to put a note up outside saying, 
this is not a foreign film. Most of it's in English. A lot of the opening is in the original languages. They will speak English at one point, and then it's just English for the rest of it, really. Please please don't ask for money back, because no one's going to see it anyway. I think was, yeah, was the word. Would you say that Sorcerer didn't weave its spell on audiences? I was waiting for you to say that one. <laughs> so got, 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 little cards, got little cue cards. <laughs> it's shifted into gear now. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Um, well, the film in terms of plot is very much front-loaded. No, but yes. Yeah, you know what? They can't all be... They can't any of them be, be keepers. Well, they can't all be correct to describe the film themselves, but it's the pun that works. It's, what else could you have? It's... Um, it's a film that stays in a high gear. Uh, Road trip. <laughs> words. Get ready for the ride of your life. Which was one to crash, wasn't it? The trailer to crash. Buckle up for the ride of your life. And then everyone went to see Crash and it was this weird, <laughs> somnambulant, erotic kind of fever dream. And people were saying, where's the basic instinct that we were promised in that trailer? It was about the woman who sued the makers of Drive, the, yeah. the, the marketing team of Drive, because she, it wasn't Fast and Furious. Which I, and I can't believe that a Cronenberg film hasn't been sued for that same reason, because Existence looked like The Matrix if you watch the trailer. It's like, I know this is not going to be what this film's like. It's like, how can you get away with doing this? And Crash looked like Basic Instinct meets Fast and Furious. And it's like, fine, but you are mis-selling what this film is. But uh, anyway, on to many different things. So yeah, so uh, I think The Sorcerer, actually, I think I think it is a masterpiece. It's one of those, I mean, I've watched it three times this year, and I could easily watch it again. It gives a huge amount of time to, to just one thing. So it takes, I think it's about... 11 minutes for them to get across the bridge and then there's a scene when they have to clear a path and that's about another 11 minutes or so and you get a real sense of just how hard it is you just get a sense of the texture and just the sheer weight of the jungle that they're having to drive through I think it's quite quite a remarkable film anyway yeah, yeah I'd say sorcery is more sort of textured and but I think uh, yeah there's something about the the economy the sheer economy of Wages of Fear well it's interesting because Wages of Fear is half hour longer than Sorcerer isn't it but you feel that it it moves quicker. I feel it moves quicker. Oh, okay, that's interesting because I I always feel that the wages of fear, which I do like, many as things. I don't think. I really think neither of us think the other film is not <laughs> no, that's in right. its own way worthwhile. <laughs> it's one of those. I mean, I do think that Les Diaboliques is Clouseau's best one, and that does have a real ruthless. Well, I think I think it's it. a shot in the dark. No, sorry, I've been. I didn't even get that one. Clouseau's best Oh, film. very good, yes. That's right. That was a callback and a half. So, if you're still with us, that Sorcerer, it's out now to buy on Blu-ray through E1. It's well worth a go, I think. Is it E1 or is it Arrow? E1. Is it definitely? Okay. E1, definitely. Well worth a go. Yeah, and... That's that for Sorcerer. I just think if there was anything else I need to say. Well, no. so initially but, when I went in, obviously uh, sight unseen, I was just disappointed that it wasn't the biopic of um, Mickey's boss from Fantasia. Yep, that's a good one too. <laughs> also, as one thing that I will agree that isn't amazing about this film is that title is shit. <laughs> I mean, I there's, mean there's the opening shot that kind of implicitly tries to say, okay, and it's like, you're not paying this off in any way. Yeah, the opening shot, which which... It does get returned to later is a stone face in this mountain that looks a bit like Pazuzu, the devil that's unearthed at the beginning of The Exorcist. So there's kind of a link there between the supernatural of that film and the kind of weirdly existential dread of Sorcerer. But the original film, well, sorry, the original title was going to be Ball Breaker, but the head of 
of Universal said, Sid Scheinberg said, uh, you're not calling it Ball Breaker, that's a stupid idea, you're not going to do that. And Sid Scheinberg said many things. He did indeed, but I think in- here... In- including, you know, let's not, let's cut the final five minutes out of Brazil. Let's completely recut Brazil. Yeah. He did like you know, his own hour and a half version, it is absolutely bizarre to watch that film. So I think he got the, he was listening to Miles Davis's album Sorcerer and thought, yeah, it's kind of, that, that's that's the kind of feel of this film. That's it's like right. another example of jazz ruining everything. Jazz is, jazz is the ultimate evil. So As anyway. I think Whiplash proves. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And if not, then La La Land definitely proves it. Or that episode of The Good Place. <laughs> but, uh, so Sorcerer, rubbish, just go with The Wages of Fear, which is what it was called in this country when it was recut so that a lot of the prologue was done as flashbacks when they're in the in the slum town which wouldn't work which is just it's like yeah my complaining about my, my, my comments that I didn't find it perhaps as elegant as it could have been they just went yeah let's just cut it let's just cut it to shit it was yeah, really shortened as well and it was called The Wages of Fear but The Wages of Fear is, is a, a great title it's a great title The Wages of Fear so brilliant La Salaire de Le Peu just wait until you want to go at that. It isn't going to get any better than that, I'm afraid. Is it like trying to properly pronounce it or just closely just leading into the. Uh, I tried yeah. to properly pronounce it. Le Seller de Plus. Realise, well, that was pretty good. That was almost as good as Le Seller de Plus. It's almost as good as your Bob Le Flambe. Bob Le Flambe? Bob Le Flambe. Just uh, waiting so, for a point for someone to say, actually, even though they are French and everyone can laugh at the French, it is getting a bit racist now that you keep doing that French voice. This is a film that I that was released about 37 years ago, and it was dead. It, it died a, a, a bad death. It was buried like Lazarus. And getting it back into the way you're going to see it tonight was like raising Lazarus from the dead. It's the film of mine that I'm proudest of. Um, and it, because it is, it's the film that came closest to the vision that I had of it before I made it. I don't know how you'll feel about this film. Just because you gave me this great honor doesn't mean you have to like the film too. <laughs> you'll decide that for yourselves. But it... it I won't say it's my favorite of all the film that I've made, but it's way ahead of whatever's in second place. Let me put it that way. I would, if I had the opportunity, forgive me for staying out of that spotlight, um, but if I had the opportunity, I would change all of my films in one way or another, if I could recut them. Uh, sometimes uh, change my selection of shots, sometimes even make changes in the story, but not this film, not Sorcerer. This is the one film that I've made that I would not change a frame of 